0: I'm Professor Phillips O'Brien. I'm the Chair of Strategic Studies at the University of St. Andrews, and I'm here at the St. Andrews Air Power Conference on the Present and Future of Air Power in conversation with Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman.
1: My name is Lawrence Friedman. I'm Emeritus
0: Professor of War Studies at King's College, London. You've written extensively on war and strategy throughout history, but air power is more recent. Let's start just at the end of the Cold War. Hmm. Can you tell me whether you think any of the fundamentals of air power have changed since the end of the Cold War?
1: I think it's important to keep in mind that as the Cold War came to an end, there was a considerable degree of uncertainty about the quality of American conventional military capabilities. It was known that there were things like the stealth bomber coming along, but not a lot had been tested in practice. And it wasn't really until the demonstration of American air power that we saw in 1991, in the first Gulf War, that it became apparent just how much capability had developed and what could now be done from the air in quite surprising ways. Air power made an enormous difference because by the time you got to the armies going on the move, the Iraqis more or less had given up and were ready to retreat. So I think that was the key moment when people's views of modern military capabilities were transformed. The operators may have known that, probably didn't know that before, but this was the time when it became apparent to the commentators and the general public.
0: When you analyze the war in Iraq and the use of air power, do you see any differences between the tactical or strategic attacks, as they called, in affecting Iraq, or do you believe any of them were more effective than the others? This is 1991? Nin- yes, 1991.
1: I think what happened in 1991 was that the United States began with some quite optimistic assessments of what air power could do, largely in terms of making life miserable for the leadership, undermining the ability of the Iraqis to continue. And then it became apparent that the Iraqis could carry on so long as they were still occupying Kuwait. You had to dislodge them in some way. And... Also, that the attack on leadership targets caused problems. It didn't scare the leadership so much, but it did cause civilian casualties and led to criticism. And an impatience then comes in, as comes in with all these campaigns. Then you move to a stage of essentially battering frontline troops when the big uncertainty was whether or not it was possible to assess the damage that had been done by what were largely dumb bombs. And I think probably what was underestimated was the effect on Iraqi military morale, while possibly overestimating the effects on Iraqi kit. But then we found out that by the time the coalition forces moved on the grounds, the Iraqis could barely cope, and a lot of their forces had disappeared, they'd evaporated. One reason, incidentally, why post-war estimates of Iraqi casualties were so way out because they counted what was missing from their original assessments of Iraqi strength rather than what was actually left after a lot of people had deserted, as opposed to just being killed. So I think it moved through stages, and therefore the lesson that people in the end drew, I think, was that it was quite difficult to win wars just by attacking so-called strategic targets, that it was helpful to the military campaign to attack energy transport targets, but that would be more relevant to a longer war. You had to move out the Iraqi army. Therefore, in the end, the main lesson was that you had to work with ground forces, although in this case a lot of the heavy work was done by the uh, air force
0: before the ground forces got involved. One more example before we get to the war on terror, and that's Kosovo which I've heard both explained as, of course, the ultimate triumph of just air power, what you can achieve, on the other to show really how tenuous air power can be if employed improperly.
1: The key point to bear in mind with both the First Gulf War and Kosovo was that in both these wars it was not the Allied objective to remove the offending regime. And this helped in terms of being able to to fashion a military response. It limited the effort you needed to put in, and that's the first point. Therefore, it was coercive, and it was about the sorts of pressure you were putting on, in, in the Kosovo case, Slobodan Milosevic. That pressure developed over time, and air power was one part of it, and another part was the diplomatic isolation. Also, although it was the case that the NATO countries didn't charge in with their armies, they were getting into a position where that would have happened if there hadn't been a ceasefire, And already the Kosovo Liberation Army was becoming much more active, which was causing problems for the Serbs in the field and providing more targets for air power. The problem with air power was that it took a long time to actually sort out An effective way of using it so initially it was believed that a demonstrative two or three days of not very effectual strikes would warn Milosevic of what was coming but he didn't take that very seriously then you attack within Kosovo itself because you try to attack the units who are perpetrating the atrocities or pushing the people out into neighboring countries But it was pretty hard to do that, and it's clear that that a lot of effort went into knocking out not very much, including decoys. Then this becomes much more strategic, and this probably did make more of a difference in this case because, in an uncomfortable sort of way, it, it reminded the Serb elite and the population as a whole that they were vulnerable, that life could be made pretty miserable, and posed the question of whether Kosovo was worth it. But I'm not sure how far that would have gone were it not also for the fact that NATO was gearing up to the next stage of escalation, which was not more airstrikes, but more action on the ground. And if the position within Kosovo itself was not deteriorating, after all, if this was about controlling Kosovo and Serb forces were finding it increasingly difficult to do so, then that was a pretty good reason in itself for rethinking their strategy.
0: Since... 2001, the United States and the United Kingdom have been continually involved in an air war around the world. I don't think there's been a month without air operations that neither country has been taking part in. And yet the wars go on. If air power is as effective as people say, why are we still involved in these conflicts?
1: The difficulty is that the war on terror, which was initially about dealing with al-Qaeda turned into something quite different. The war in Iraq was not the war on terror, at least not initially. It eventually became a war on terror much later on when we created the conditions in which terrorists could flourish. But initially, that was about something else. It was misnamed. And the problem we got into in both Iraq and Afghanistan was toppling regimes quite easily, but then sensing a responsibility for what followed but not having a regime that could sustain itself and develop forces that could take over responsibility for their own security. That was a very particular problem. Then you had separately the development of political challenges in a variety of countries, some connected with the Arab Spring, in which, because of what had happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, allied governments were very nervous about putting in their own ground forces. So you were reliant on whoever it was happened to be available to take on Al-Qaeda or later Daesh. And it took a long time after the Americans had decided to get back into Iraq to find those with whom they could usefully fight. The Kurds were the ones that were always available. So you have this problem of having to find local forces and put trust in them, whereas inevitably these local forces had their own agendas their own ambitions, which are not necessarily coincidental with those of the Allies. So there are all sorts of difficulties of translating military strength into lasting political advantage. Basically, you could never relax. You might push back against a terrorist group, against al-Qaeda or ISIS, or against another group with whom you had found yourself in opposition, but you can never quite make them go away because they had local roots and local capabilities, or they were reinforced by foreign volunteers. But for whatever reason, even when they have faced significant defeats, as ISIS undoubtedly has in Iraq and Syria recently, they can still bounce back. And this is not just a problem for the United States and Britain. It's a problem for Russia and in Syria. It's a problem for Israel with Hezbollah. Unless you can actually occupy areas and eliminate enemy forces which is beyond capabilities these days it's just too much to ask but when the opponents have any real political push behind them you end up with this continual fighting sometimes not very much sometimes a lot sometimes you think you've got the upper hand sometimes you're struggling to regain it But you don't get the sense that there's an easy conclusion to this. Least of all, because there's no central enemy command with which you could do a deal or negotiate. It's decentralized, distributed, with a lot of different centers of power. So the political choice, I suspect, at some point, is whether we continue to bother, whether we decide that there are some parts of the world that maybe just have to look after themselves and that we can't continue to act in this way anymore. And then we may find what happened after 2011, which is that it seems a bit of relief until the bad guys take over again and mount terrorist attacks and that country and kind of so So it, it just could be this is the way it is. And it's sustainable. It's not impossible to carry on this way. It's not cheap. But it's not as expensive as fighting massive wars with large armies.
0: You've written about the future of war. One of the big changes we've had, of course, is the introduction of pilotless or UAVs, which some people believe heralds an enormous change in our air power and others would argue it's a continuation of what we're doing by other means, just a pilot not in the aircraft. Assuming we continue to have more of them, though not change over fully, will this make a difference in future wars?
1: I think it already does make a difference. I mean, new technologies always make a difference. They produce opportunities that you didn't have before. Clearly, we can now target individuals in ways that would have been difficult before. There's all sorts of new developments coming along with swarms of small UAVs that could overwhelm quite substantial targets. Now, there's all sorts of possibilities. Against that, There are often known vulnerabilities to these systems. They're often quite slow. They're vulnerable to air defences. They'll get faster and more capable over time, but then they'll become more expensive. So it does make a difference. The fundamental problem, as with all forms of air power, is that by itself it doesn't occupy territory. By itself it can't administer. And those are the things you have to do if you're showing that you've made political gains or defended people and territory that matter. So it helps, but it's not necessarily as transformational as people would assume because it still has to be linked with broader political and strategic objectives. We keep on coming back to the difficulties of doing things without a substantial presence on the ground. And if somebody else's presence on the ground the extent to which you have to subordinate your goals to theirs, which can be quite
0: awkward. A final question asking you to look ahead as you've just written about uh, the future of wars. In 10, 20, or 30 years, you can choose what will air forces look like and what will war look like? The book is
1: actually about how people have looked at the future of war. So It's about how we keep on getting it wrong, not because we're bad at prediction, but because a lot of future looks are actually about the present, about warnings, about how things will look if you don't follow this advice, if you don't introduce this weapon and so on. That being said, if we do look ahead, first, we know what a lot of the air forces will look like because a lot of the systems... They're going to be flying uh, coming in now. And we know a generation after the F-35, for example, is going to be incredibly expensive. It's hard to imagine. So it's not too difficult, I think, to assume that the fifth generation aircraft coming in now will be there for some time. And whether there's a sixth generation, one may doubt, just because of the sheer expense. The second thing to keep in mind is that most wars in most places are... Pretty bloody, vicious affairs in which modern military capabilities make only occasional appearances. they are civil wars that have been going on for ages, often fought with militias, basic arms. and Even Ukraine is not a desperately sophisticated war, which in this case air power isn't used very much at all. They're also very difficult to bring to an end, these wars. So one of the predictions one might make is a lot of the places we're seeing war at the moment will still be seeing war or there'll still be a, a high risk of it. So the backdrop is that we've got a reasonable idea about where the fault lines are, where there are a lot of possibilities for conflict are. We can hope that there are ceasefires and peace deals and so on. You don't want to be too defeatist and fatalistic about it, but realism suggests a lot of this will continue. There's always something that nobody reckoned on, a political decision one way or the other that nobody quite anticipated, which has consequences, which is a surprise. The famous article that was written by a number of Norwegians a few years ago, which purported to describe conflict for the next 30 or 40 years and where it was likely to occur, but didn't actually mention Libya or Syria, because they happened to be at peace when the article was written and people hadn't worked out why those two countries might find themselves engaged in violence. So there's always something. And we're sitting looking ahead 10, 20 years at the moment, but there could be a major clash between Iran and Israel bringing in Lebanon quite soon. I'm not saying it's likely, but I could describe the dynamics which would lead it to take place. So the point about the future is it's shaped by decisions and choices that haven't been made yet. And that's one reason why we work in this area and look at the dark side of things, because you hope to be able to anticipate some of those choices, maybe influence them, so that they're not as nasty as they might otherwise be.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Friedman.
1: Thank you very much.